0: All right, we're going to be looking this morning at Isaiah chapter 9, if you want to look there in your Bibles. uh, Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to look at verse 1 and 2, and then jump down to verse 6. Oh, and I can take this off, thank you for signaling that, oh my goodness. Um, Did you understand that I said Isaiah chapter 9? Okay, Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to be looking verses 1 and 2, and then at verse 6. Here's what we read. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning in a season of life which does feel dark, um, It feels wearying, it feels confusing, for many it has been a season of adversity, and Lord, we come to remember Him who is the light, and God, I pray, as we reflect on what these verses are saying, I pray that you would teach us, that you would draw us more deeply to drink in the well of worship and enjoyment of Jesus, in whose name I pray, Amen. The whole context of Isaiah chapter 8 and 9 is talking about the nation of Israel and particularly the nation of Judah, the southern tribes, who were in a period of darkness and gloom. As a matter of fact, at the end of of Isaiah 8, the verses just before the ones I read, it says this, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They will be thrust into thick darkness. This is the scene. People are, are living in a time of darkness and gloominess. And this metaphor is one that is the foundation to the promise that a light will come that will dispel darkness. What I'd like to think this morning, and then we're going to, it's going to form the basis of our study this morning, is to think about the metaphor of darkness, because throughout the scripture this metaphor is used in our lives, and it's talking about how God enters our life to dispel our darkness, but there are three metaphors, three senses of the metaphor of darkness that I think are used not only biblically, but psychologically, and that we, we sense in our own lives. Number one, when we talk about darkness, we're talking about a lack of sight. That you put out your headlights in a dark dark night and you can't drive because you have no capacity to see. Uh, Lack of sight is a prominent sense of the metaphor of darkness. A second one is lack of security. We fear the dark. We feel afraid far more and unsafe because of unknown dangers at nighttime, right? I mean, you you don't see kids that are particularly concerned about what's under the bed in the afternoon nap or what might be lurking somewhere else. The, The concept is nighttime can be scarier because it's darker. The third aspect of darkness as a metaphor is that it refers to a lack of hope. This is actually the one that is particularly used here in Isaiah 8 and 9. We talk about She's in a dark place. He's, man, it's a dark mood he's bringing today. The sense of darkness is manifested in all those three things. And that's going to be what we look at this morning. But you'll notice here, there is a promised light here and in other passages of the Scripture. And it is not a what, it's a who. Here's what he says, the people who walked in darkness, and in, in verse 2, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Matthew quotes this passage in Matthew chapter 4, when, he's, when he, it is a situation where Jesus is going into the, the very regions of Zebulun and Naphtali that are recorded here, And he says this in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in this region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. It's not a what, it's a who. Now, this is tremendously important and frankly very exciting when we think of the culture in which we live. Many authors are today writing about a shift in understanding of spirituality within our culture. The spirituality has rejected scientism, the idea of science and reason being what we need, more of a secularist perspective. This new spirituality though, which is a really heightened spirituality, also rejects what we might call moralism or religiosity. Um, many people will say to you, I, I'm sure probably every person in this room and everyone working online has talked to somebody that has said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not religious. And there are more nons that are answering the question, what religion are you, than at any time in American history. People are rejecting religion, and yet there is this explosive spirituality or interest in spiritual things in our culture. This can be a tremendously exciting thing as we think of biblical truth. For the gospel says, come meet a person. Come and see Jesus. Jesus directs attention to himself, not to a religion. To a relationship. Jean Twenge, the professor of psychology at San Diego University, State University, wrote the book, The Me Generation. And in that particular study, actually not only that study, but in her writings at large, she argues that, the, that this very emphasis of evangelical Christianity is what accounts for its growth among young adults today. The concept of a faith that is ultimately a relationship This is biblical Christianity. This is what it is about. It is about a person. It's about relating to a person. It's not a dogma. It's not a religion. Ultimately, it's a relationship. And this person came to dispel darkness. And these three things that are involved in this metaphor are what I want to just look at quickly this morning. The first of those is that Jesus dispels darkness by giving us sight. In Jesus, we see, C.S. Lewis famously said in his his book, um, well actually it was a, a speech that he gave at Oxford University, and he made this statement about Christ. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. This is exactly what is is involved in this statement, that Jesus himself is light. It isn't only seeing him, it's seeing everything else as a result of knowing him and doing life with him. The light of Jesus gives us eyes, new eyes to see things. The light changes the way you look at God. This is one of the intentions of Jesus coming to the world and coming into our lives. The incarnation of Jesus is designed to help us see God. The incarnation uh, formed from two words in the original, meaning in, uh, karnas, in the flesh. He came in the flesh. God came in the flesh that we we could see God. He could be a light to us. In her in her writing, the greatest drama ever staged, Dorothy Sayer says it this way: The incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death, he has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He Himself has gone through the whole of human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain, all for us, and thought it well worth His while. Jesus came to show us that He is such a God. And He is not a God that is far off, aloof, disconcerned, unaware. He actually came and experienced all that we experience in a broken world. This truth, I was struck with in a, in a very unique way a number of years ago when I went to Turkey and I spoke at the crew uh, what was then Campus Crusade uh, uh, conference of all of their missionaries and staff members throughout uh, the Soviet bloc and the Islamic world, and they came together. And one time, when Mary and I were out with a young woman, and this young woman had been uh, was a was a member of their staff now, but she had grown up in a communist country. She was uh, she was brilliant. I mean, she had a doctorate. But she had uh, been able to get permission from her communist country, which was utterly atheistic, and had gone to a, in, uh, a country in the Arab world, uh, state religion entirely Islamic. And while she had gone to university, she had begun to have a, a burgeoning hunger to know about God. And so she was introduced to the Koran and began to study it. And, uh, Process it and in her conversation with Mary and I, she explained to us her experience. She said, I read about God, but a God that was a God of power. And a God that was a God with with moral standards and, and principles, but a God of power and might was what I read. And she said, I understood power. Growing up where I grew up. I understood power. It did not seem that different to me. I had seen the the powers of the world. I had seen powerful figures run our nations. And she said, a God that was a God of power just didn't seem that divine, if you will, that, that distinct from what I had seen. And then she said, someone shared with me a New Testament. And I read about a God who also was a God of power but who took upon humanity and came among us and felt what we feel and and, and embraced every part of our human experience and even took our own punishment on Himself. She said, such a God overwhelmed me. And in her statement, she said, this was a God I longed to know and who was worthy of my devotion and love. In Jesus, in what Jesus did in coming among us, in embracing this Jesus and getting to know Him and process, there is light to have a different view of God. For He Himself personifies in His incarnation the reality of a God of humility and grace and mercy. Jesus also gives light to us and it changes the way we look at ourselves. Jesus brings light by showing us things about ourselves that we would prefer not to face. John 3 talks about that in verse 19. The light has come into the world. Talking of Christ. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. He shines the light on us. And we see sin as it is. As people were around Christ and they saw true righteousness, a true goodness, some hated him for it. Because it was a reflection on himself. As you go to the Scriptures, what the light of Christ does is it exposes, right? It shows things. But the ultimate reason Jesus shines that light into our lives is not to expose or to condemn. Because in that very fat passage in John 3, it says this, that His purpose in illuminating you, John 3.17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The light of Jesus shows you that you are more evil, corrupt, and self-centered than you ever dared believe. But... It also shows you that you are more valued and accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. This is the light that Jesus brings. It enables us to embrace all the ugly, all the broken. Because the one who knows us most says, I want that boy. I want that girl. I I want them enough that I will come among them and become them and be a substitute for them that they can know me and do life with me. The light changes the way you look at yourself and you realize you are a person of incredible value to God. So much so that He would come in your brokenness to rescue and save. The light gives us sight in changing the way you look at other people. C.S. Lewis, again, this time in his book, The Weight of Glory, says this, uh, I just think, so powerful. Here's what he says. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, Art, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors, or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be that of a kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. There are no ordinary people, he says. We are all eternal beings, everlasting beings. We are all people created in the image of God. God made them all. He values them all. Just like He does you. They are evil, corrupt, and self-centered, just like you. But they are also just like you. Those who the more they don't know how much God loves them, the more they will feel condemned and unlovely and driven to be meaningful in a thousand ways, And we'll have terrible triggers that are the result of their neediness and brokenness, just like you. What they need is to know God's love. His forgiveness, and whether their names are Eminem or LeBron, Ryan Reynolds or Beyonce, Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin or Mother Teresa, they are valued by God, made in the image of God, desperately needing mercy and acceptance from God that can ultimately be found only in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And the light of Jesus comes to dispel our darkness about people, about God, about ourselves, he gives us sight. Secondly, Jesus dispels darkness by giving us security. You know, darkness is, is frightening, right? Darkness is uh, it creates increased dangers. I don't worry very much about my wife going somewhere in the daytime. But if she's going some isolated place at night, I want to make sure the phone is charged, I want to know where she is, I want to know when she's going to get there. Why? Because darknesses increase at nighttime. Muggers are more bold at night. Robbers tend to, to hit your house at night. Darkness creates increased dangers. Darkness also creates imagined danger, dangers. You developed imagined dangers because you can't see that they are not there. In every youth group, probably there has been this event. I had it way back when I was in high school. with the, uh, We had campus life group at our church. About 40 kids were there. And they set up this obstacle course. And they chose me to be the, the guinea pig. And... Um, They showed me the obstacle course, and they showed, me you know, they're they're putting a chair here, they've got these things you had to step over here, there was a table you had to crawl under here, I mean, all these things. And being an engineer's boy, and also being fairly arrogant, which is probably why I was chosen for the event, I said, well, can I, you know, as I do it, because they said, you know, remember where these are and go through it, and I said, well, can I check it out? So, you know, I I measured it out, I said, all right, ten steps... I was going to nail this baby, and so I started, and I was, I was awing myself. I mean, I was stepping over, and I was going around, and I wasn't hitting anything. And the campus life guy would give me, "Okay, you're getting close to the, you're getting close to the the, um, the chest of drawers we put there, and and you got to step around that." And, and so he's helping a little, but honestly, I, I was pretty impressive not touching anything. Now, if you've been in youth groups, you know what was going on. And everybody's laughing. I don't really understand it, but I'm going to... By the way, I'm blindfolded. I guess you got that part. So I'm going, and finally, it's beginning to dawn on me, I'm good, but I'm not this good. I don't even touch anything. I don't feel anything. And of course, now I'm realizing, wait a minute. There's nothing here. They cleared the whole obstacle course. And I'm just stepping over. And, you know, I'm moving around. And all this stuff. And there's nothing there. And so they're watching and looking. He looks like a buffoon. <laughs> so, but, but I wasn't done. Because, I, you know, there was a table to go under. It was a wooden table. And a, a dining room, big dining room, heavy dining And And so I said, you're at the table. So I'm going down. And I'm in the, underneath the table, <laughs> and I'm trying to think, is there a table? I mean, no, it's probably not a table because they moved everything else. So I'm just going to stand up and, and say, I get it. But what if there is a table? I'm going to smash my head. I'm going to really. So I, I went through, I, 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 now I had imagined dangers. Even though I had thought I had resolved them, I wasn't sure. So I did the whole thing, and of course the table was gone. And so I ran the whole thing through this this non-existent obstacle course, but we have imagined dangers. And darkness causes us to do that. We need perspective. We need light. We're told in Psalm 119, verse 30, the entrance of Your Word gives light. That in our darkness and our sense of fear, Fear of the unknown, fear of what might be, fear of the table, we're not sure if it's coming, if it's there or not. Fear of just what's there. Jesus speaks to us His Word. He does it all the time, right? Many years ago when one of my, well, my boy Ben, uh, who spoke last week, Ben really struggled with nightmares at one part of his life and we were praying with him and I finally, I didn't know what to do, so I just said, look, I took a verse and the verse was Psalm 141, excuse me, Isaiah 41 verse 10. Here's what it says. Fear not for I am with you, do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I started off and I wrote I wrote the verse out and I started off when I said, "Dear Ben." And I wrote the verse, "Fear not, I'm with you. Don't be dismayed." And then I signed it, "Love, God." <laughs> And I put this little card, and I taped it right next to his bed on his wall. And I said, Ben, this is what the Lord is saying. And I noticed, we talked to him, and he seemed to be doing a lot better with the, the, the dreams by God's grace. And I, talk, I, I went in his room about four days later, and I noticed that the paper was sort of crumpled uh, it was still on the wall, but it's sort of. I said, Ben, what, what happened? He said, Every time I'm in bed and I start to get scared, I just reach over and I sort of grab. And, and he said, And it helps me not to have the dreams. It's truth, right? Now, I'm not promising if your kids have dreams, say, that's, that's a trick. I'm just saying that the Lord uses, Jesus uses the word. He. The entrance of your word gives light in in the darkness, in the scary times, in the scary moments. And then not only the dark shadows of bedrooms, but many places can feel foreboding and overwhelming. When living in the shadows without the light of God's word speaking into you, everything seems darker, scarier, more overwhelming. And if you've walked with Jesus for a number of years, you know how powerful Jesus' words through the Scriptures can be as He speaks into your life. Some of you have got scary things right now. Some of you, it feels dark. I don't know where this is going. I don't know if we're going to make it. I don't know how this is going to play out. Jesus said, I'll be the light. I'll speak into you. I'll enable you to see what you need to see as far as you need to go. But I'll also help to dispel the darkness the fear, and the fearsomeness of that darkness. Third, Jesus dispels darkness by giving us hope. Isaiah 9 says, Then they will look and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. That's the last verse of, 20, of, of chapter 8. And then he says, Nevertheless, There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. When people are put into darkness, it depresses them. Humanly, physically speaking, this happens, of course. People in places like Alaska or Scandinavia... Have what's called polar nights. Polar nights are a 24-hour period where the sun never shines. There are places of the world which uh, have 60 polar nights in a row, 60 nights never seeing anything but darkness. In those places, there is a specific title for the depression and gloom that people experience. It's called the winter sad, seasonal affective disorder. It's a winter depression. It reminds us that darkness does that to us. When we are in darkness, when we're in sadness, when we're in relational conflict, it feels dark. It feels heavy. It feels gloomy, right? When things are are worrying us, it feels dark and gloomy. And Jesus, again, is the one that comes to bring us light. Charles Spurgeon is one of the most famous preachers in the history of the English language. He was in uh, London a a little over a century ago. And Charles Spurgeon, if if you've ever read him, he he just had an, an astonishing love of Christ and a a real gift with words. Actors would go to just sit in his thing and and listen to him to learn how he communicated. But Charles Spurgeon dealt with uh, depression. And one time, and and the greatest depression, he was a very big people person. One of the hardest things for him was people um, criticizing him, people being against him, And one time, he was really struggling with the darkness, as he used the the expression, actually, the word. The darkness of of people's attacks, and and, um, the more he became well-known, of course, the more attacks he received. And his wife, actually, one night, um, well, she had done it before they went to bed, but the lights were out, so he didn't know it. She had actually painted... On the ceiling, this verse, and the verse says this, it's from Matthew 5. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Spurgeon talks about waking up, and there's this this visual that his wife has put to just remind you, Charles... This is what Jesus says. These are Jesus' own words from Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus speaks into us in our darkness. Some of you are in real darkness right now. Some of you are are experiencing the gloom, the borderline moving from depression into despair, Historically, the people of the church have always called that darkness. Uh, St. John of the Cross, in an early century, made this, he wrote a whole book called The Dark Night of the Soul. Christians struggle like everybody else, but there is light that speaks into our struggles. There is light that speaks into our darkness, and it is found because to us, a child is born. A son is given. Jesus has come among us. He knows your wiring. He knows your struggles. He knows your brokenness. He knows your needs. He wants to speak in to you and be light to you. Maybe His light to you will be reminding you who you are. That's what the light does. Maybe it will be reminding you who He is. Maybe it'll reminding you of of what he's promised in your circumstances but Jesus has come as the light. To close this morning, I just want to I guess I just want to speak this admonition. Many of you are aware culturally that there has been a big movement of many kids now millennials, some of them that have left the church and left, uh, turned their back, many of them still very spiritual, but have renounced what they understand of Christianity. Maybe you're here in one of those. Maybe you're online in one of those. I just want to speak to you today. For those who are like the number that have said to me and have maybe said, or maybe you've said this, yeah, I, I, I tried Christianity. It didn't work for me. This is what I want to say to you. It's not an it. It's a he. And the degree to which you learned Christianity was an it. Or the degree to which you interpreted Christianity that way is the degree to which your perception of Christianity was mistaken. Jesus Christ is the light. He came to illumine darkness. The darkness that makes life scary, that makes life hopeless, that makes life not make sense. Jesus Christ is the safest person in your life. And many have embraced, and our own kids of of, of, of generations past certainly, some of us from our parents what we've embraced of Christianity is it's about doing the right thing and and measuring up, and, and it's not. Jesus Christ is not there saying, I'm waiting for you to screw up, or if you do right, I'll bless you. If you do wrong, eh, just you're sorry. You, you you, You really didn't make it. Jesus Christ is the safest person. He won't let you down. He won't tell you that. You have to straighten up or get it right as His primary focus. What He will do is show you that you were not wired to do life on your own. That He loves you with a love you cannot fathom. A gentleness and compassion that you will never find anywhere else. And if He prompts things in your life and says, I'd like this to change, it's only because He is so for you. You will never have to worry that He's unsafe because today He's going to be this way and tomorrow He's going to be this way and I'm going to, I'm going to hit the wrong trigger because He's needy and He's hurting. No! He's utterly sufficient in Himself, but He is offering that sufficiency to you. Christianity is not an it. It's a he. It's a him. The safest person in all the universe is the one that came for that that woman I talked to in Turkey. And she said, oh my goodness. This this view of, of spirituality where God comes among us and and, and rescues us and wants us. I want to know this guy. I want to worship this God. And the degree to which you have learned or interpreted a different guy or God, it wasn't Christ. Because He is the safest person you'll ever know. Let's pray. Lord, We all have darkness. We all need light. Thank you, Lord, that you chose this metaphor because it, it makes sense. It works for us. We know what it feels to feel dark and to feel fearful. We need light. Lord, we need Christ. Lord, how I pray that what is the takeaway of this simple sermon this morning would just be a hunger to know a Christ who is the safest person we could ever know. That we'd want to know Him more. we want to live with Him more. Thank You for wanting to be known. In Jesus' name, Amen. Go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.